Thank you. 
remain standing for prayer. Let's go in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, praise your holy name. Thank you, Lord, Heavenly Father, that you've given us a day and a time to gather together, to hear your word, and to fellowship, and to receive instruction, and to be encouraged and edified. Thank you, Father, for all of the different ways that we can join together in Korea and Australia and Africa and America and around the world that we can gather together at the same time over the internet, over the telephone and different ways. Thank you, Father, for this ability and this blessing and provision. Thank you, Father, that you continue to call more people to yourself, that you are calling people out of the world, out of the lies, out of the false religions, that you're calling people out of darkness to your holy light. Praise your holy name, Father. You are bright, you are glorious, you are wonderful. You created the sun, the stars, the moon. You created all angels. You created us. You created the earth. You created all things. And you are worthy of all praise. We do praise you, Father. Thank you for saving us. Thank you, Father, for calling us out of all the lies, showing us the truth. Thank you, Father, that you continue to bring new brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, that you are still in the business of saving souls. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Lord, Father, we pray that you would help us now to spiritually hear and spiritually receive your word, instruction and correction. We ask, Lord, that you would help us, that there won't be any interference with the video, that there won't be any hindrance with the video or the sound or the technology that we have set up here to broadcast your word. We pray, Lord, to be no hindrance to our minds and our brains and our spirits to receive your word. No hindrance. We cover this service by the power of the blood, the spiritual power of protection and cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ. We apply over this worship service, over everything that is done, over every word and over, over every thought and every deed. We plead the blood of Jesus over Brittany, her arms, the videos, the sign language, her health, her energy, and her strength. We plead the blood of Jesus over the pastor, over the sermon, over the scriptures, over our seats, over this building, over all of our brothers and sisters around the world that are listening to your word, serving you in the name of Jesus. And we come against, by the power of the blood and by the power and the name of Jesus, we come against every spell, every curse, every spirit of witchcraft, every demonic spirit that is trying to come against us or that is trying to come against this ministry. 
We rebuke it and we bind it in Jesus' name. We rebuke and bind the lies and deceptions of Yah and Yahweh and YSWH and Yahshua and all of that filthy, blasphemous, demonic, satanic names. We rebuke it and bind it in Jesus' name. The demonic Y names will not come in this door and speak evil against the holy name of Jesus. We are the army of the Lord, and we will not allow any feminine women that are not feminine but masculine who control their husbands and are contrary to the holy word of God. We will not allow women to come in here and take over. We will not allow demonic satanic names to come in here and take over. We bind those witchcraft spirits. We speak against those devil worshipers. We are people of Jesus Christ. Father, we are your people. We are your army, and we will fight. And we will rebuke the devil and cast out demons. The demons are not welcome here. We are the people of Jesus Christ. We are the church of Jesus Christ. And we have power. And we have authority. And we will not allow people to come in here and, and conquer us and take over us and bring in demonic spirits and come in praising the devil. We will not allow it, Father. We are your people, and this is your place, Father. And your spirit will always reign here. Thank you for giving us boldness, courage, wisdom, and discernment against the enemy and their tactics. We pray, Lord, for their repentance, that we come against the spirit of the wide-named cults. We come against Hebrew roots, Messianic Judaism, which is Islam. We come against false doctrines that we have to be, that men have to be circumcised and that we can't eat pork and shrimp because, Father, I know that you have power to cleanse both animal and human. Father, I know that your blood is not weak, but that your blood did cleanse both man and beast. Praise your holy name. Father, I stand for your word today. I stand for your people as a pastor over your sheep. I would not allow the enemy to come in here as wolves in sheep clothing and take your sheep. I would not allow it, Father. We are your people. Father, speak through me now. Put your words in my mouth. And may we stand upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ, the only name by which man may be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. So be it. Amen. Praise Jesus. May we see you.
turn in the New Testament to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. You can tell today I'm in the mode of spiritual warfare. I have to do what I have to do, and I have to follow the movement of the Holy Ghost of Jesus Christ. Tomorrow we're going down to the hardware store. Act 17. subject today, or the name of the sermon, rather, the name of the sermon is Witnessing Among the Unclean. Witnessing Among the Unclean. In Acts 17, we're going to start in verse 16. Acts 17, verse 16, and God willing, we'll go from there all the way down to verse 25. According to however his spirit moves. Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paulos, that's Paul, his real name was Paulos, was waiting for them at Athens, and Athens, the town of Athens in Greece. His spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols that would be statues of many different gods. During the time of the Roman Empire. So he was reasoning in the synagogue. That is the Jewish church building with the Jews and the worshipers in the marketplace, both of those locations. Every day with those who happened to be present. And also, some of the Athecrian, whoever, that's a group of people, and the Stolic philosophers, were conversing with him, having conversation. And some were saying, what would this idle babbler want to say? Others said, he 
He seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities or strange gods, strange spirits. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So you see here he was witnessing to several different groups. Not just people keeping the seventh day in the synagogue. But also philosophers. That would be Greek, Roman philosophers. That would be like atheists and people that believe in many different gods rather than one. And they thought he was strange because he was preaching to them a different God. One that had died and come back to life, Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to Arius Pagos. Arius Pagos. Now, you don't see an S within that word apparently right now in this translation, but it needs to be added. A S needs to come after the letter O. So let me pause to take a note there that I need to fix that. Now, Arias Pagas, I did look it up, and that is how you pronounce it, Arias Pagas, in some translations, says Mars Hill. Mars Hill, like the planet Mars Hill. But Arias Pagas is what Paul actually, well, not Paul, but Luke, who wrote this, actually wrote. He didn't write the words Mars Hill. He wrote the Greek word Arias Pagas, which we know also as Mars Hill, same place. Now they brought him there to that place, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the the, uh, people of Athens and the strangers visiting there, foreigners, used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Verse 22, so Paul, Paulos, stood in the midst of Ariaspagos and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all aspects. They had many different gods. But while I was passing through and examining the objects, statues of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, this graven writing. that said, to an unknown God, to unknown theos. Therefore, what you worship in 
ignorance, this I proclaim to you. In other words, you're already worshiping this God. You just don't know you're worshiping this God. You have an altar that says to the unknown God, and you just said about me that I preach an unknown God to you, a strange God to you, so this is what I'm proclaiming. And I'm explaining it to you. I proclaim it to you. Verse 24, the theos, which is the Greek word for God, and actually not just Greek, but pale Hebrew, because Greek is Hebrew. The theos, which means God, it also means the Alpha and Omega, who made the world and all things in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in the temples made with hands. Because he's not six foot tall, he doesn't just stay in one place, in one building. He is a spirit that lives throughout the entire universe. Nor is he served by human hands as though that he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Now what he means by that he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, do not misunderstand what that says. It's not saying that we cannot lift our hands to worship him. That is not what it's saying. But rather, it is saying, in comparison to these statues, that we don't have to set a bowl of food in front of a statue or in front of God. But that's what they were doing to the statues. Even though the statue cannot eat or move or talk, but we know from history, documented history, even to this day in India, they put food in front of a statue. Here, even in America, some of the Buddhists and Hindus and so forth put food in front of a statue because they think that we have to give an offering and we have to feed our God like he's a little baby. Feed your baby and everything, but that food is going to sit there and rot have to be replaced the next day, whatever. So that's what he means. He's not a God that has to be served by human hands as though that he needed anything. Now, notice that Paul understood that these were people that did not believe in just the one true God. They were pagans. There were people that did not know the truth. And we can relate that today to many people who, like Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and Jehovah Witnesses and even the Baptists and Pentecostal churches that believe in like three gods, a three-headed trinity god, three-headed god. 
That's the same as these Greeks that believe in many gods. There's no difference. If you want to believe in more than one God, you believe that there's two God beings or three God beings, like they all believe in the Trinity, then you might as well believe in a million God beings. There's no difference between three and a million. You either have one God or you don't. And the Bible says there's one Lord, and it calls Jesus Lord. It calls Jesus the King of Kings. So if Jesus is the King of Kings and also calls him the Lord of Lords, then there's no King or Lord above Jesus. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. So how can there be a Lord or a King above Jesus? It's impossible. Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That means the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He said that too, like that. So if he's the first, there's no one before him. If he's the beginning, there's no one before him. Nobody created Jesus other than the fact that God, who is a spirit that dwells everywhere, cut part of himself into the body of Mary and blend it with the blood of man, kind. And the flesh of Jesus was created by birth. Yeah, the flesh, that body was created by birth. But that soul, that spirit, the real person inside that flesh, no. His soul, his spirit, was never created. He always existed. John said that in John 1. In the beginning was God. And the Word, which is Jesus, the Word was with God and was God. We get confused because it says with God and that makes us think that there must be two. But my right hand and my left hand is both with me and I'm still one person. So only part of God went into man, just like my finger can go in this cup. But just because my finger went in that cup doesn't mean the finger in that cup is a different person. It's still me. Amen? Mm -hmm. I could spit across the room if I wanted to be that vulgar. <laughs> I could spit across the room. And that spit would come completely separate from me and become separated from me. But it would still be my DNA. Amen? Jesus got separated on purpose from the great spirit into the blood, completely separate as far as this belief with human eye. But he was still the spiritual DNA of the Father. He was still the Father. Now, even the book of Colossians says, and John says, that Jesus created all things. So if Jesus created all things, he's God, and he's the Father. The disciples said, show us the Father. What did Jesus say? He said, I've been here all this time. Jesus said, I've been here. He's the Father. I only have one God, not two, not three, not a million. 
Now, Paul knew that these people did not understand that. They believed in a million gods. Notice in verse 17, he did witness to the people in the synagogue, that means people who kept the seventh day, of course, but not just those people, also to these other people that believed in many different gods, not just one. But he did not think that he should avoid witnessing to these people just because they were in deception. And these people wanted to hear what he had to say. Amen? It says in verse 20, we want to know what these things mean. In verse 21, now, all these uh, Athians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So they were not people that felt like that they had to stay only with one thing. They was willing to hear something. They was willing to grow in truth. They were curious. They were seekers. They were seekers. Amen. These are not like a lot of people today where you can't tell them nothing. They won't listen to you. They don't want to listen to you. So these are different than some people today, but nevertheless, it's still true that these were false believers. Paul could have said, no, I'm not going to that place. I'm wasting my breath. I'm wasting my time, knowing that they were pagans. But he did not have that reaction. He was willing to go with them because they were willing to listen. Amen. go to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a person called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now, what it means by Matthew being in the tax collector's booth means 
that that was Matthew's job. He was a tax collector. He was the IRS. <laughs> now, you know, people today hate the IRS. But they did back then, too. I don't think that's ever changed. <laughs> and not only that, they called the tax collectors of the time, they called them dogs. That's how much they hated them. That's a dog. And they're like, I don't want to go around them. I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to be their friend. And if you was a friend of a tax collector, they would also stay away from you too. You would be like a betrayer. But Jesus did not have that reaction. He went up to Matthew, this dog, the way other people saw him, and said, follow me. Be my disciple. Come follow me. Now, Matthew did not argue. Matthew didn't say, why? Or give me a few minutes, or let me go get this, or let me go get that, or let me do something first, or let me give two weeks' notice. No. He quit his job right on the spot. Got up, no questions asked, no hesitation, followed Jesus for the remaining time from that day until Jesus died. Amazing. way we all say that now. But Jesus called this man that other people didn't want nothing to do with, the underdog. Amen? Man, praise the Lord. That's God. That ain't me. That ain't my wisdom that said that. That's God. Put that in. I'm not that smart. (laughs) That's God. Verse 10. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining in the house, Behold, many tax collectors, not just one dog, but a whole pack of dogs, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees were the religious leaders, the pastors of the time. But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. We know that the Bible says Jesus is the great physician, the great doctor. And he's not talking only about physical sickness, but spiritual sickness. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I did not come to call the righteous. You think about that. We have to recognize that we need a Savior. Amen. We need a Savior. We have to recognize, come to the place in our life, that we realize that we're sinners and that we need to be saved and we need a Savior. God did not come 
just to talk to people, witness to people, and preach to people who are already saved. They didn't come to do that. That would be really foolish to come and, and just talk to people that don't even need because they're already saved, you know. He came to heal people, spiritual, mental, emotional, and physical, in every aspect. Amen. You know, there's that old saying, preaching to the choir. Some people preach to the choir. That's one in the country songs, like country music. That's in one of the country songs that the man wins the girl. He rides a motorcycle, and his girlfriend rides on the back of the motorcycle with him, and they're pulling away from her dad. Her dad is like watching his daughter being tucked away by this motorcycle guy. And the whole time that they're pulling off, the dad is preaching to them. And it says in the song, he's preaching to the choir. Song says, This girl saved me. Now, of course, Jesus saved him, but it was her reading the Bible to him, it says in the song. It was her reading the Bible to him and witnessing to him. This guy that everybody else in the world, well, a lot of people, looked down upon the gangs and the motorcycle people and the rednecks and so forth, looked down upon them. And this, of course, preacher dad is like, oh, no, my poor girl. But that girl saves the motorcycle guy, loves him. He, she is the choir. She is active in church, basically. She sings. She praises God. She doesn't just sit on the back row, but she gets involved in church. He's preaching to the choir. So God doesn't want to just preach to the choir, the people that are already active in reading and preaching and witnessing and so forth. But he came to save the redneck and the motorcycle guy and the underdog and so forth, of the underdog. Amen. The people that everybody else looks down on. He came to save us. Amen. Verse 14, then the disciples of John came to him, John the baptizer. There's two Johns. There's John the baptizer, John the Baptist, and then there's John the apostle, two different men. This is talking about John the baptizer. The disciples of John the baptizer came to him asking, why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast, or in other words, the students of John the Baptist. We see throughout the Bible that a man of God, a pastor, a prophet, usually does have students, other men that God brings into his life for him to be not only friends and brothers with, but to teach them and to be a spiritual father and a, a mentor 
teachers of young men, to help the young men to live clean and to understand the truth and so forth. And this is what a disciple is. A disciple is a student of a preacher. John, not only did Jesus have disciples, but John the Baptizer did. A disciple is not some cult member. It's just a student that is learning like an apprentice. Apprentice of the Bible. And these religious people ask John, how come you and your students are not fasting? We fast. The Pharisees fast. But you all are not fasting. Why? Verse 15, Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the groom, the bridegroom, is taken away from them, and then they will fast. In other words, And actually, kind of misunderstood what it was saying in verse 14. Verse 14 is saying that these students of John the Baptizer came to Jesus. That's what it's saying. Students of, the students of John the Baptizer came to Jesus and asked Jesus, not asked John, but asked Jesus. You and your disciples are not fasting. Now, we know that Jesus did fast for 40 days at least one time. Or more. So we know that Jesus did fast sometimes. But according to this, he was not fasting as often as the Pharisees. Okay? And it was true. Jesus, even though he did fast for 40 days, he didn't fast constantly, all the time, every time you turn around. Because he did not deny it. Amen. He didn't say you're bearing false witness. This ain't true. I fast all the time. He didn't say that. Instead, he said, how can the people mourn while the groom is still with them? So in other words, if you're having a wedding party, and you've got the bride and the groom there, and you have the people there at the marriage feast, at the marriage party, you're going to celebrate. You're going to drink wine. You're going to eat cake. You're going to have good food. You're going to have singing and dancing. You're going to celebrate. He's basically saying, I'm the groom, and I'm here right now. Why fast? Let's drink the wine. Let's eat the cake. Let's celebrate. I'm here. The Father is with you. God is with you. Why fast all the time and be sad and groomy and starve to death? When the bread of life is here with you. Why starve if the bread of life is here with you? That was his response. And yes, we should fast, but we should not be like the Pharisees who thought you got to fast once a week or two or three times a month and constantly. I met a person one time. 
that said that we have to fast more than the Pharisees did. Because the Bible does say we have to be more righteous than the Pharisees. It does say we have to be more righteous than the Pharisees. And we know that the Pharisees fasted often, so the guy assumed wrongfully that we should fast even more than they do because we should be more righteous than them. But righteousness comes in many different ways. You can pray constantly and still be more righteous than the Pharisees or have more love. Amen. The Pharisees knew about the letter of the law, the do's and the don'ts, physically, that you could see with your eye the do's and don'ts. But the Pharisees' problem was they didn't understand the spirit of God. They had no spiritual discernment. Or love. So we don't have to fast more than the Pharisees. Right. But the Bible says in Isaiah 1 that the fast I want, God said, Jesus said in Isaiah 1, the fast that I want you to do is not really abstaining from food, but rather giving to the poor, helping the orphans, helping the widows. It's not really that he wants us to starve and suffer, but rather he wants us to put someone else first. That if it is our last bite, somebody else needs it more, we should give the shirt off our back or our last food to somebody that needs it and do that type of fasting. It's not just that he wants us to fast for no reason, there's times to fast when nobody's taking your food. Don't get me wrong. There is time to fast when nobody's taking your food. But a lot of people fast really more of a ritual. Just like people always think they've got to bow their head before they eat every meal, and they do that ritually. Mm-hmm. And I don't do that. I do not bow my head and pray before I eat every meal. People think, well, then you're not grateful and you're not acknowledging God. But they don't see that inside my head, inside my heart, while I'm eating, while I'm tasting the wonderful taste of that food, I'm praising God and I'm thanking God. I don't have to perform for who's in front of me. Amen. Amen. I don't have to follow man's rituals and do it exactly the way they want me to do it and the way they expect me. My prayer is to God, not to man. My prayer is to God, not the woman or man that is looking at me. Jesus said, pray in private in your closet instead of praying on the corner of the street to where everybody can see me. So I'd rather pray in my heart rather than just saying, uh, yes, Henry, uh, I'm going to pray so I look holy. You know? Amen. So if I feel like I should fast, I fast. God calls me to fast, I fast. If God doesn't call me to fast for two years, I won't fast for two years. 
God calls me to fast every week, I will. But it should be God calling me to do it. And not just from ritual or what religion or church tells me to do. Unless a pastor, of course, a pastor can say, let's all of us fast together a certain day. That's okay. Now think about this now. Jesus was with the disciples at that time. Now Jesus lives inside of us now. The bridegroom is here now with us. And he is just as real with us right here, right now, as he was with the disciples. We can't see him with our physical eyes, but sometimes we can hear him in our head, and he is here. So the bridegroom is here right now. Why should I starve? I'm going to eat, baby. I'm going to eat. Okay? But, yeah, there is a time to fast. And really, most people should fast more. Most people should fast more than what they do because it humbles you and it helps you to get a stronger relationship with Jesus. I encourage fasting. I talk about fasting very often. But once you get old enough in Christ, once you reach a certain point in your relationship with Christ, then you can eventually start fasting less as you get closer to the bridegroom, as you feel his presence more, as you hear his voice more. Fasting is really most important for the people that have just now starting to know Christ, just beginning their journey in Christ, just now learning the truth. That is the most important time to do a lot of fasting or going through a very difficult time, even if you have been with the Lord for a long time. There's a time for fasting. But when you feel the joy and the peace of Christ and you know him and you feel his presence and you're living with the Lord and he's living with you, then why starve if you've got them, if you really got them, and you feel that joy, and you feel that peace, and you feel the victory, and you got the power, and you can cast out demons, then why fast? You got them. Celebrate. Amen. Now, notice verse 13. I did not come to call the righteous sinners. Jesus did talk to the underdog. He did talk to the tax collectors and called these people to follow him and to learn the truth. He could have said, you're dogs. Nobody wants to have anything to do with you. And Paul could have done the same way to the people in Athens and Greece. But both Paul and Jesus both was willing to walk among and teach the unclean, the dogs, the Gentiles, the Greeks. They was willing 
to reach the lost, to try to reach the lost, if they were willing to receive the truth. Now, a lot of people use verse 10 that Jesus was reclining in the house. Many tax collectors and sinners came, were dining with Jesus and his students, his disciples. A lot of people say, because the Bible says this, well, I can go and hang out with the people doing crack. I can hang out with the people smoking pot, and I can hang out with the, the alcoholic, and I can be their best friends, and I can witness to them to bring them to Jesus Christ and to love them and show them God's love and God's mercy because Jesus did that, because Jesus hung out with the sinners. He hung out with the homeless. He hung out with the IRS and the dogs and people, the sinners. So I can do that too. The problem with that is that these were people that were willing to hear the truth learn the truth, become students of the truth, and live the truth. They were willing to repent. He was not hanging out in the drug house with pot smoke in the air, people smoking crack pipes who did not want to hear religion. He was not doing that. No. No. Come on now. Our, our God is holy. Our God is not no pothead. Okay? So do not use Scripture, Holy Scripture, to excuse the fact that you want to hang out with the druggies because you're one of them. It's ridiculous. People use Holy Scripture to excuse their sin. There's a difference between what Jesus did and what a lot of people are doing. Now, of course, I have hung out with lost people who smoked pot and did other drugs. But I also told these same people, do not have any drug in my house or in my car. You got any drugs on you right now? Hide it under that tree, hide it behind a building, wherever. Do not bring your drugs in my car because I get pulled over and you got the drugs and I get in trouble too. Mm. And then that's going to hurt my ministry. And do not be smoking pot in front of me or other drugs in front of me. I'm a preacher. I'm a man of God. Do not be doing these things in front of me. And they respected that. Most people have respect. And if these people did not respect it, then I would not hang out with them anymore. And I would share the truth. I would tell them about the invasions. I would tell them about the seventh day. I would tell them the truth about Christmas and Easter and that we don't have three gods. And if they was willing to hear all this and not tell me you're wrong, well, then I would keep talking and keep witnessing and keep being their friend and help them as necessary and be their buddies and their friends. That's what Jesus was doing. Talking to and being friends with sinners who were willing to listen 
and willing to respect him and his teachings. On the other hand, if somebody was around me or around Jesus, he said, no, you're wrong. You're deceived. And there is three gods, and there are three people in heaven or two people in heaven or a million people in heaven. And we don't have to keep the Ten Commandments, and we don't have to keep the seventh day. If they're not going to respect God's word, God's truth, bye-bye. Get out of here. I ain't going to waste my time. And Jesus ain't going to waste his time. But people think that because God is love, that we should waste our time. That's what they think. Because God is love, that you should always and forever continue to teach and witness to everybody, even if they reject, totally reject the truth and refuse to hear you out. That's not right. That's not wisdom. So yes, there's a time to witness to the unclean, but there is also a time to separate yourself from the unclean. Amen. Amen. Now we know. Let's look at John three. John three sixteen. John 3.16, which is one of only two verses most people know. John 3.16, for Theos so loved the world that he gave his only existing son that whosoever shall entrust to him, entrust meaning marry their soul to him, would not be annihilated but have eternal life. Now notice, that he loved the world. The world, that includes not just the righteous, but also the dogs. He loved the world. That includes atheists, sinners, Muslims, Buddhists, everyone, every person, every color, every race, every tongue, every language. He loved the world. That's the whole world. That, he would send his only existing son at that day and that time. Jesus was his only existing son. So that whoever would entrust their soul to him, more than just believing. I know King James says believe. 
when you look at the Greek, it means to really, really trust in him, to marry your soul to him, to come at one with him, would not be annihilated, but have eternal life. Salvation is about God saving the lost. Not coming to the righteous, but saving the lost is what salvation is. It's everybody finally coming to the realization, I'm lost, I need a Savior. And Jesus loves the sinner, not hate the sinner. He loves the sinner and hates the sin. It's true that he loves the sinner and hates the sin. A lot of people are saying that's wrong. A lot of people are losing the gospel of Jesus Christ. A lot of people are doing away with Jesus' name and saying that God hates sinners. There's preachers preaching God hates sinners. That's crazy. They've lost the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is he does love the world and came to save the lost. That's the gospel. Amen. We need to remember that as well. It ain't going to do no good if we try to only witness to only the people who already know the truth. We've got to be willing to branch out, reach out into the world, reach out into that darkness. If we are copies of God, his children, I'm a copy of my dad. I'm just like my dad, I tell you. I don't like that, but I'm just like my dad. But we should become more and more like our Heavenly Father. Amen. And He is the light of the world, meaning that He is the energy of life and that He is pure and clean and holy. That's what that means. And we should become that. And the Bible says, be ye holy. The Bible, in another verse, says, be ye perfect, meaning sinless. And it says, be ye perfect. It's not saying you've got to be able to calculate in your head 99 times 99. It's not talking about that kind of perfection. But sinless, be ye sinless, is the way it can be translated. And that's not impossible. Not impossible. Amen, brother. It wouldn't say be perfect if we can't become perfect. God doesn't require the impossible. Amen. So be ye holy in that other verse. Holy means without sin. Amen. But we were not always holy. We was not always holy. None of us was. I wasn't. You wasn't, she wasn't, he wasn't. Paul was not always holy. Paul, before he got saved, he commanded the murder of true Christians when his name was still Saul. He didn't yet believe in Jesus. He didn't yet believe that Jesus was God. He heard about Jesus. 
and he knew that some people were saying Jesus was God, and he thought that was blasphemy. And he commanded the murder of people who said that Jesus was God. He was an evil man. He was religious, and he thought he was doing the work of God by killing people or commanding the death of people who were saying that Jesus was God. So he thought he was honoring God. But really, he was fighting God. But God came to Paul, or Saul, as he was known at the time, and said, why are you kicking against me? Jesus appeared to him as a bright light, so bright it literally blinded Paul, blinded his eyes more than just a few minutes. He was blind. He became a blind man, Paul did. He heard the voice of God speak to him out of that bright light, so bright that it burned his retinals in his eyes. Why are you kicking against me, Paul? Well, God sent a man to Paul saying, you got to get baptized. you got to get saved. God has brought me to anoint your eyes. And Paul, I think, had a dream, didn't he, Brittany? Paul had a dream. The man had a dream to go do that. So the man came and anointed Paul's eyes. Paul was healed. He could see it. Man explained. You heard Jesus. You saw Jesus. Jesus is calling you. Serve him. Got to be baptized. Paul accepted Jesus as God. He had to Rick. He had to hit rock hard bottom first. He had to be struck by God. He had to be blinded by God before he repented and accepted Jesus as God. But once he hit that rock-hard bottom and got struck by God, then he repented, got baptized, got saved, same thing. Praise the Lord. So none of us we're perfect from the start. It's a process of learning our lessons and being struck by God, being punished by God, being chastened and being chased by God. God calling us. Amen. And then we have to make that choice. We, we do have to make a choice. We do have free will. Either to, to live for him or not live. We do have free will because we're not robots and he doesn't want us to be robots. Mm-hmm. We have to freely choose him. Paul could have said, I still won't serve him. I'll just live blind for the rest of my life. I'll learn breath. <laughs> Paul could have said that. I ain't going to serve him. He could have been stubborn. A lot of people would be. He said, no, I, I, uh, okay, all right. He got saved, amen. But God loves even this murderer. 
God loved even this man that was commanding the murder of saints and still called him. That's love. That's mercy. That's real love. That's real mercy. Thank God that he loved me because I was doing a lot of drugs. I wasn't really addicted, even though I did different types of drugs playing around. I wasn't really addicted to drugs, but it don't matter if I was or not. I was doing a lot of drugs. I was still guilty, as even as if I was addicted or not. I was doing different drugs, more than just pot. And I even lived a lot of other darkness. I don't even want to name lots of darkness. Really did Amen. become extremely, extremely evil. Amen. But I knew I was wrong the whole time. I knew better the whole time. But I was on a path of self destruction. And he still loved me. No matter how evil I got, how far down in the trash can that I got, he loved me. Wanted to clean me up. Called to me, come to him. The Bible says some of you were homosexuals and some of you were murderers and so on and so on. But now you're worst. You're worst. Man, it don't matter if you killed someone or if you was a homosexual or if you was in witchcraft or Satanism or drugs or whatever. It don't matter what your former previous sin was. God is the God of mercy. He is the God of love. But once, once you choose to live for him and get saved, then he requires a lot from you. Because he is a holy God, and he's not going to save you in vain, or he doesn't want to save you in vain, rather. He has spilled his holy blood for you. Then you ought to respect him back enough to respect that blood that he died for you and not trample that blood underfoot and take his name in vain. You should not take his name in vain like a woman who marries Mr. Smith takes his last name in American culture and then go and sleep with a man, another man, right? That would be taking your husband's name in vain. We should not say, I am a Christian, I am a Christian, that I'm the bride of Christ and the church of Christ, and then go out and serve the Buddhist God. Or the Muslim God. That would be adultery. Really, truly, that would be adultery against God. So we should not take his name upon us and say, I'm a Christian, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, and yet commit adultery by worshiping false gods in Christmas, false gods in Easter, false gods in Halloween, false gods in the Trinity, false gods in the pre-trib rapture, false God on the Sunday, worshiping the sun on Sunday. People go to church on Sunday, you're worshiping the sun. That's the whole purpose of Sunday worship, is worshiping the sun. That's the origin of it. Christmas, they don't worship Jesus. It worships the Antichrist. 
That's where Christmas and Easter came from, was from Assyria. It was Assyrian, originally Muslim holidays. The president of Syria, he's a Muslim, but he keeps Christmas and Easter because it came from his nation. He knows it did. Christmas and Easter were originally not Christian holidays, but Muslim holidays. And there are Muslims, President of Syria, and his worshipers, those that worship him as God, they keep Christmas and Easter because they know it worships the Antichrist. They know it worships Assad and not Jesus. They know it does. And it's proven in history. The Christmas, Easter, and Sunday people, they're committing adultery against Jesus. And they are not truly the bride of Christ. And they have taken God's name in vain. And they do it every Sunday. When they step in foot of that Sunday church, they're taking God's name in vain. They keep Christmas, they're taking God's name in vain. We either serve God in spirit and truth or we don't. Let's go to 1 Peter 3. That's near the book of Revelation. 1 Peter 3. James, Peter. Uh, James. Yeah, right after Hebrews and James. One Peter, First Peter, chapter three. In my Bible, it's page two thirty-one, but it might be a page or two different because I've done some editing. Praise Jesus. Yeah, you can feel that uh, Sunday worship service start evil and end evil. One Peter chapter 3. Start in verse 18. One Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, for all people. The just for the unjust. He's the just one. He died for the unjust people. He died for the wicked. He died for the sinners. So that he might bring us to Theos. He died in order to bring us to him, to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He rose from the dead and rose. But he's also crucifying us and resurrecting us spiritually in the spirit. Verse 19, in which, talking about his spirit, verse 18 and 19 are connected. Alive in the spirit in which also he, Noah, went and made proclamation to the souls in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of Theos kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons 
were brought safely through the water. This is saying that Noah, while he was still working on building the ark, before the flood came, Noah went to prisons and preached to sinners, to the disobedient. This is what this is saying. Now, your traditional lie that is taught in most churches is that this means Noah, no, they say the traditional lie, the fairy tale that they teach is, they say this means that, that Jesus, when he died, went into hell preaching to people who are burning in hell. That's what they teach in the Pentecostal and Baptist church and most churches. That's crazy. That's insanity. Somebody needs to call a mental hospital and come and arrest and take away every one of these people in the Baptist and Pentecostal churches that's teaching that. Jesus went to hell during the three days that he is dead and preaching to people who are burning on fire. Oh, come on now. How, how ridiculous can people get? That's crazy. That's crazy. If they're already in hell and they can't escape and they're never going to heaven, why preach to them? That's crazy. Okay. So what really happened is Noah, while he was building the ark, can't they read? Noah, while they, he was building the ark, went into the prisons preaching to this disobedient souls. They think disobedient souls means people in hell. Well, people in prison, they're, they're disobedient souls, most of them, some of them. And so what was happening was Noah had a heart. He's like, great flood is coming. Everybody's going to die. But these people in prison, the only way they're going to be warned it's only if I go inside that prison and tell them. No one knew that God could bring an earthquake or some kind of legal miracle and free those people from prison if they would agree to get saved. No one knew that. He was a preacher. The Bible says Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He did more than just build the ark. He was a preacher and a prophet. And he had a heart for the lost. He went into the prisons knowing that it was possible that if these people were willing to believe what he said, that the end of the world is coming and you've got to get saved. He, had, he was a man of faith that if they got saved, they could get on the ark. A miracle would happen, and they would be released from jail one way or another. They could be saved both spiritually and physically. Saved. But no, none of those prisoners got saved. None of them. It says that only eight people, and it's talking about Noah and his wife, and Noah's sons and his sons' wives. Bible says in another place. Those are the only ones that survived the flood because those were the only saved people. 
out of the whole earth. And the earth was very poor people in that day and time, very poor people. But there's only eight true people that truly was saved. And I believe that the number of people on this earth today who are truly saved is also a very small number, very small. Maybe maybe a little bit more than eight, but not much more than eight. Because Revelation 12, verse 9, says that Satan has deceived the entire world. Entirely. Everybody. Every church, every religion, every denomination, every family. Satan has deceived the whole world. So, it's impossible that the one billion Catholics, over a billion Catholics on this planet, that they're saved. That's impossible. Millions and millions of Baptists, millions and millions of Pentecostals, millions of Lutherans, and Seventh-day Adventists, and all the other groups that have thousands and millions of members, it's impossible that they're saved. Because the world is lost. They're deceived, they're lost. This room, three people here right now. Over the internet, there's three people listening on the radio station, and there are two people listening on talk shoot. And some of those might even be the same people listening two places. I don't know. So I estimate one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Wow. Eight souls, counting myself. Eight souls. Wow. Woo. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. You know you're a redneck when you're preaching and you go, Woo! <laughs> you know you're a redneck. Amen. Praise Jesus. God loves rednecks. Loves barefoot rednecks. <laughs> oh, God, it's so good. And he has a humor. Praise Jesus. You know, when eight people. Matthew 25 also talks about, in the very end, on the last judgment day, at the end of the second life, when he puts the goats on the left and the sheep on the right, he's going to say to those goats on the left, that means lost people, he's going to say, it says in Matthew 25, that you did not come to visit me in prison. And you did not feed me. And you did not give me nothing to drink. He's going to say to the people on the right-hand side that he calls the sheep, he's going to say, you did come to prison and witness to me. You did give me food. You did give me clothes. You did give me drink. And the people that did do that, they're going to say, when did we visit you in prison? We don't remember that. When did we give you this stuff? When did we visit you when you were sick and 
everything. Jesus said, when you did it, someone else, you did it to me. But to the wicked and the less, you did not do this to other people. You also rejected me. Then he throws those people in the fire, kills those people, billions of people. God's going to kill billions of people in one flash of light, of fire, burn those people. But there will also be billions of people on the right, too. There will be a lot of people to get saved. There will be. But it's a process, and that's why it takes two lives. For most of us, it will take two lives to become pure. But we must be willing to touch, to witness to, to preach to the lost, the disobedient souls, the Muslims. Those are human beings that God created that needs to get saved. But they have to be willing to listen. They have to be willing to listen. If we try to witness to a Muslim or atheist or Buddhist or whoever, or Baptist or Pentecostal, and we try to witness and they say, no, you're wrong, and they just totally refuse to even think about it and examine themselves about what they believe and why. If they totally refuse it, the Bible says to curse them. Matthew 10. It says, first, when you go into a house or a city, bless it, be at peace with it, share the word of God. But if they reject your word, then take your shoes, pass your, the dust, the ashes off your, the soles of your feet, which is a curse in the Middle East. In the Middle East, if they take and dust the bottom of their feet, it is a curse to those people. That's how you curse someone. It says, if they reject your word, do that. Curse them. It doesn't say, keep begging them to accept the truth. It doesn't say that. God doesn't want us to waste our time because there's always somebody else that might be willing to listen. And if we waste our time, the devil would drain our energy and, and just waste our time, and, and then we ain't going to be able to spend time with somebody else that's more willing to listen. We have to choose our fight wisely. Amen? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, right after Romans. Is it right after? I was talking to a Muslim friend. Yeah, to witness firsthand the transformation of believing in their stuff. Halfway 
not all the way there yet, but I'm after. It's a start. Yeah, amen. And I can give you some tips on that later. Mm-hmm. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. One Corinthians five verse okay. nine. First Corinthians. This is one sixty eight on mine, but it might be a page or two difference in some copies. One Corinthians five verse nine. I wrote you, this is Paul writing, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Lost people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and the swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of this world. You're not going to associate with these people. You've got to leave the world. You might as well fly to Mars. Verse 11, skip all his footnotes. See how a lot of those words are in. Uh, Slanted words, italics, go to verse 11. But actually, in all capital letters, it says, but actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or idolater or reveler or a uh, 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 alcoholic or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Not even eat with those people. But what I have to do with judging outsiders? You do not judge those. Do you not? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside Theo's judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So in other words, Paul is saying he had written to these people before. This was actually originally a letter, okay? All these uh, books of the New Testament, they were not originally written as books like we know it, or not even sections of the Bible originally. Originally, these were actually letters where Paul wrote down a letter to a group of people and sent a letter to people. Uh, that is true for uh, all of Paul's writings. And this is called 1 Corinthians because there was a town called Corinth. And the people there was called Corinthians. And he was writing to the church, to the true followers of Jesus who lived in that town. Now, he had written a letter before this one in which he said, do not associate with immoral, basically unclean, lost people. But now in this letter, he's clarifying, explaining himself what he meant by that. He says, I wasn't really talking about the people out there in the world, but rather I was really talking about false brethren, verse 11. Yeah. So he was really talking about if somebody claims to be saved, if somebody says, I'm a Christian, they say, I've taken the name of Christ, 
but they've taken it in vain. They're saying they're a Christian, but they're still living like the lost world. Understand yeah. They're, it calls these immoral people, but they, they are so-called brethren. It says, remove that wicked man from among yourselves. That's why it says the last words of verse 13. Remove that wicked man from among yourselves. This means, now once people first start coming to the truth or first start coming to services, we've got to understand they're just coming to the truth. They're not completely clean yet. We've got to first teach them, tell them what the truth is, witness to them, witness to the sinners. We will all witness to them. Give them a chance. Give them opportunity. This is true not only for people to come to services here, but people listening over the Internet for the first time, people first coming to the website, your family and friends when you first witness to them about what the truth really is, that you give people a chance and some time to come to the truth and to choose to serve the Lord. But once they say no, then Matthew 10 says, curse them. And then this verse says that if they claim that they are saved, they claim to be a brother, they claim to be part of the church, but they're still living a life of sin. They're alcoholics or they're idolaters, swindlers, covetous, immoral. They're still sinful people. They have not changed. They're still the same people. They always were. They're still doing the drugs. But they say, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. God hung out with sinners. I can do it too. God hung out with sinners. That means I can smoke pot. You know, they are not your true brother. Remove that wicked man from your from your midst. From your... What Paul says to do. But yet, most so-called Christians who claim that they are saved, they say that we should just all love one another and get along. Don't disfellowship. Don't ever give up on anyone. Just keep witnessing and just love them and just keep witnessing and keep witnessing and keep witnessing and keep witnessing and keep and endless, endless. God is not that way. God is not that way because God sooner or later will get sick and tired of saying, come to me. And he will eventually strike you dead or punish you very severely. Doesn't it say that after so many chances, he sears the mind? Yes. He gives people over to their addiction. He gives people over to their false gods. Yeah. 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 It says he gives some people over to homosexuality. Not that he wants them to stay homosexuals, but because they have chosen to stay in that and reject deliverance and salvation, he says, okay, that's what you want. You can have it. And you seriously lie. Yes. And not only with the homosexuals, but with anything, drug addiction or anything, including atheists. It talks about doing the same with the atheists and the people that worship the creation rather than the creator. It says he does that with them too. So 
That's also what he's doing with the pre-trib rapture people. People who believe in pre-tribulation rapture, they want that so bad. And they completely reject the truth that there's no rapture before the tribulation. Jesus says, I'm going to give you the sky splitting. I'm going to see, I'm going to give you what you want. Hey, God, coming down out of the sky before the tribulation. I'm going to give you what you want. Here it is. It's like a parent saying, you want to smoke cigarettes? Here, smoke this whole pack. You're going to get sick. Now, some people wouldn't do that, but God would. That's what he does. And I got real sick. <laughs> Amen. That is what God does. He lets you have what you want. So, because we do learn from suffering. We do learn the hard way. It takes the hard way to learn. I know it took the hard way for me to learn my lesson. People can preach to you day and night, say you got to get saved. But until you get sick and tired yourself of living in misery, you have to live in misery and get sick and tired of living in misery before you say, I, I do, Lord, I give up, <laughs> I surrender. You have to suffer in order to realize you, that you're lost, amen? that you need rescue. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. Look here. But he says, as far as verse 10, if you're not to associate with any lost people, the immoral, then you're going to have to leave this world. You're going to have to come out of this world. You know? So he's saying, he didn't really mean in the previous letter not to talk to any sinner. That's not what he meant. But he's really talking about the people who claim to be saved. Those are the ones he was really warning you about because they are the most dangerous. The people that would come in here and say that they are saved and that they know the truth and that they're your brothers and that they love you and yet they worship the devil, those are the most dangerous people. Those are more dangerous than somebody that comes in here with 666 tattooed on their forehead who admits that he hates God. Because at least with that person with 666 on their forehead, I know who he is. And he is honest with me. And I won't be tricked or deceived. But if somebody comes in here and says, I follow the true God, and I love you, and you're my brother, and I'm here to encourage you, but Jesus is not his name. Yahweh is his name. Those are very dangerous people. Very dangerous people. Because they would try to sneak their way in. They would try to love their way in. They would try to hug their way in bribe you with their love. Be careful. 
very, very careful. The devil is a snake. Very, very sneaky. So we do have to be careful who we witness to. Those that claim to be our brothers and sisters are sometimes our worst enemies. Even Jesus said that he did not come to bring peace. Jesus said, do not think I came to bring peace, Matthew 10. Yes, yes. But a sword. And he said, your enemies will be those of your own household. But guess what? The people that live in our house, our parents, our brothers and sisters. But now, as adults who no longer live at home, our new brothers and sisters and our new household is the family of God. And these people come in here and say, I'm your brother, I'm your sister. The enemy, your worst enemy, will be those of your own house, those that claim to be your brother, those that claim to be your best friend, those that claim that they're your brothers and your sister or your best friend as an adult person living for Christ. Those are your worst enemies. Of course, we pray for true brothers, true sisters, but we have to be careful because the devil is a snake. Now, Paul wrote more than one letter to these people. And it took more than one letter to explain what he really meant. Paul was a very complex person. Very complex. Paul's writings are very difficult to understand. And who was it? James or Peter, one of them, said that Paul's writings were very difficult to understand. In the Bible, it says either Paul or James. You know, Britain, which one it was? Or John or somebody? But... John, James, or Peter, or somebody in the Bible. So Paul's writings are very hard to understand, and they are. And I'll give you an example, because now let's go to something else he wrote later on. Let's go to the Second Corinthians, the next book over, Second Corinthians, chapter 6. Two Corinthians six. This is one eighty three in my Bible. Two Corinthians six. Amazing, amazing, best Tim. I've sought the church for a long, 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 long time. Prayed about it. You know, been in and out, in and one, out, yeah, out, in and out, in and out of churches. Never, 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 you know. I've always had spiritual discernment. Um, I can just feel truth. I, and for a church like this, man, it's amazing that I mean, I'm learning a lot you know, oh, just in the first day. Amen. Amazing. Amen. Can't believe it. Amen. 2 Corinthians 6. Let's start in verse uh, 14. 
Now remember, this is the next letter he wrote later on. We don't know how many days, weeks, or months later. He writes this other letter to the same church people. It says in verse 14, 2 Corinthians 6, 14, Do not be unequally yoked together with unfaithfulness. For, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what communion has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belia, basically demons? Or what portion faithfulness with unfaithfulness? Or what agreement has the temple of Theos, talking about us, with idols? For we are the temple of the living Theos, just as Theos said, I would dwell in them and walk among them. And I will be their theos, and they should be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you. And you should be my sons and daughters to me says the Lord Almighty. Now, let's review this. Verse 14, do not be unequally yoked together with unfaithfulness. Now, we're not all equal. Amen? We are not all equal. Some are holy, some are dirty. Some are holy, some are sinful. We are not all equal. Do not be unequally yoked. Yoked is like tied together with unfaithfulness. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? So righteousness and lawlessness are two different things. They are opposite, correct? And what communion has light with darkness? Those are two opposite things, light and darkness. Of what harmony has Christ with demons, basically? Opposite. Or what portion faithfulness with the unfaithfulness? Opposite. Or what agreement has the temple of Theos with idols? Opposite things. Verse 17, come out from their midst and be separate and do not touch the unclean. Now here... It's not staying with only church people. Just be careful about false brothers and false sisters. But rather also, it is including people and things that are unfaithful, that are serving the devil, that are in the darkness. Do not be yoked together, tied together. Now, this can be applied in many different ways. And I will go through at least two or more. In one way, this can apply and does apply toward people, boyfriends and girlfriends, and who you marry and who you date. Because you should not be yoked together in marriage with somebody who is not going to serve the Lord 
that marriage ain't going to work out. Either you're going to end up lost, you're going to leave Christ, you're going to lose, you can lose your salvation. It's in the Bible. You can lose your salvation. There is no such thing as once saved, always saved. <clears throat> so be careful to not get tied with unfaithful, unbelieving husband or wife. But this can also be applied toward best friends, who your best friend is. Because if your best friend is in darkness, lawlessness, and unfaithfulness, if they're a sinner not even trying to live for God, it don't matter whether they really say that they're saved or not. If they are living in darkness, why would you want to be around it? If you're light and they're darkness, you're holy and they're unclean, what agreement would you have? You know? They're going to get sick and tired of you or you're going to get sick and tired of them, one or the other or both. It ain't going to work out. It just ain't going to work out. So we do have to be careful who we hang out with, not just with dating, but friends and church and just people in general. It is true about all of life that you do have to judge people, not just within the church. Even though Paul in the previous letter said that what he was talking about was really in the church, this letter he wrote later on, I believe, expands even outside the church. And when we look at even more of Scripture, there's other Scripture. You can't just go by just one and two Corinthians. The Bible's a big book. You've got to go by the whole thing. And when we go by all of the Bible, I really believe, and I, I believe that if you read a lot of the Bible, that you would agree that we should not be continually dwelling among the unclean. And here it says in verse 17, Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. But we have to balance Scripture. One Scripture does not erase another Scripture. We have to believe both verses. We have to believe all of the Bible. So if we apply it all and try to get the right balance to it, yes, we can witness to the unclean. Paul did that at uh, Mars Hill. Jesus did that with the tax collectors and the Pharisees and different people in the sinners, even ate, ate with the dinner, uh, had dinner with the sinners, everything. But as I keep saying over and over, if they're willing to listen, if they're willing to receive what you have to give them, that's when you can touch the unclean. That's when you can witness to the unclean. That's when that it is profitable for God's kingdom and that person and you and everybody involved is profitable to continue to touch the unclean and try to lead them to God. But if they're not willing to receive the truth, 
if they are stubborn, if they are hard-headed, if they say, no, this is not right, and they're not even willing to examine themselves, then that is when you've got to realize that these people are truly rebellious, and they're not going to get saved, at least not now, and you're wasting your time. And if you continue to waste your time with them, they will pollute you. They will eventually, if you continue to spend enough time with those people, whether you're talking about inside the church or outside the church, if you spend enough time with an alcoholic, you will become an alcoholic because it rubs off on you. If you're hanging out with somebody that drinks constantly and you think that it won't affect you, then you're wrong. Because if you hang out with somebody that's addicted to anything, drugs or beer or anything, even cigarettes, if you hang out with that person constantly and you're in that environment, it will eventually rub off on you. Because friends do adapt to one another's lifestyle. They blend together. If you hang out in a barber shop and you say, I don't want a haircut, I don't want a haircut, I'm just here to hang out. And you go there every day and hang out with the old men talking and you do that every day, every day, every day. One of these days you're going to have a haircut. One of these days you're like, well, I'm here. I'm your friends. You're my buddies. And you all getting haircuts, cut mine too. Amen? And if you do that with people that hang out with the smoking pot, it, you're going to say, oh, okay, all right, let me, ha- let me have one. Yeah. The Bible says bad company corrupts marriage. So who you hang out with, it will, you will embrace it sooner or later. So there's a difference between just witnessing and planting seeds the way we need to be planting seeds. There's a difference between that and hanging out constantly with the sinners. Noah went to the prisons, spent probably 30 minutes, an hour, however long visiting hours was, and then left and went back to, the, to his saved family and took care of his own family that was really saved and everything and continued to nourish those people with the word of God. He didn't move into the prison, you know. So we should not be moving in with sinners, hanging out with them all the time if they're not willing to repent. On the other hand, on the other hand, we must be willing to plant seeds in the dirt. Over and over and over, Jesus used the example or the analogy of working on a farm. He did that all the time. He would always say, you know, people out there working and they're planting and they're working in the vineyard, they're working in the field, and such and such happens in the field. He loved that analogy. 
because to him we are part of a harvest growing in the field and there is a first harvest and there's a second harvest the first life and the second life the first resurrection and the second resurrection the Bible talks about more than one harvest of souls now we are to be working in that field that means we are to be planting seeds in the dirt of this world so we are supposed to take the flyers that we have on the front table here which people on the internet can print out from the website and treat these flyers as a seed and even though the world is filthy and the world is unclean and the world is dark and miserable and lost we are to take these little seeds of light plant them in the bathrooms and in the grocery carts and on car windows and take them on the side of the drink machines and so forth anywhere we can find to leave a seed in this dark world in this large field of earth hoping and praying that God would lead just the right person find that piece of paper and that God will water it fertilize it take care of it and make that person be resurrected from the ground we pray that that happens and it is our job and it is our duty to work in the field and God does need more laborers to go and plant in this field but if you're if you are too scared of getting your hands dirty then you're not going to be very effective in raising new souls to Christ you got to be willing to get your hands dirty Noah was not afraid to go into the prisons Noah could Noah could have said but these people have murdered people and they might murder me we've got to not be afraid of getting our hands dirty Amen. And even though I do put a lot of emphasis on these flyers, that's only one way that we should be planting seeds in the world. There are other ways. And if you plant the flyers and that's all you do, then your reach is very small, very small. Because most of the people listening on the internet only travel so many miles they pretty much stay in their town that they live in then you can only reach the people in that town and that's good that's a start but in our day and our time with the technology that we all have for every one of you listening have the internet or a telephone I believe that if God gives gives us tools that we're responsible for using them for God if we're in the field working and God show God throws a shovel out there in the field we better pick it up and use it if God has given us the internet then we better use it for the glory of the Lord God has given us the tools we should use it we should use the internet to reach people on Facebook Twitter the other website called we we whatever 
website that you can, social media, try to reach people outside your little tiny blocks. Amen. This is a huge world. And what does Matthew 28 say? We call it the Great Commission. Go into all the world. It says go into all the world, not just your little corner of the world. And they didn't even have internet at the time. They had boats, and they went in those boats, and they went to other nations in those boats. Even then, they did not just stay in their little tiny corner of the world. Paul traveled all across the Middle East, not just in Israel. He traveled to, to Rome and Turkey and Greece and so on and so on. He traveled nations. And the other disciples did as well. They didn't even have what we have today of the gasoline and the airplanes and the internet and the automobiles and the trains and the buses. I believe because we have all of this, we are held to even greater responsibility than they were about reaching the whole world and going into all the world. If we don't use the tools God has given us, we will be held accountable. God expects hard work with a passion. God expects that. And sometimes that might mean going outside our comfort zone. I know that not every person is called to actually go into the jails and the prisons. We all have different callings. Some people are called to go into the nursing home and witness to those people and help those people. Some people called more to the homeless. Some people called more to the prisons. Some people called more towards something else. We have different callings. I understand that. But we do need to use the tools God has given us. And especially in this ministry, more than any other ministry. Because not only has God given us the tools of social media and the internet and the flyers, but he has also given us the most important word, the most important message in this whole earth. More important than any headline in the New York Times. Amen? The New York Times, they're published all over the world, not just in New York City. You can buy the New York Times in England. We have more important news than the New York Times. And we're warning people about the Antichrist and what's about to appear in the sky very soon. We're going to have to warn people about the Antichrist in the sky and about the Russians are coming, the Redcoats are coming. You ever heard that story about Paul Revere riding the horse? What's my children when you should hear the midnight ride of Paul Revere on April 7500? I think it was on. Yeah? Cool. In June. 
Now, Paul Revere, he didn't have a car. He didn't have a train. He didn't have an internet. He just had a horse. He riding in the dark, yelling. What was he yelling? That the British were coming. The British were coming. The British were coming. Well, those British, they're wimps. <laughs> I'll tell you what. The British! Well, come on now. Now, the Russians, the Ru- I'm sorry if any British are listening, but, but the Russians and the Chinese, what a foe, what a foe, what an enemy. That's a lot. A lot of people, huge armies, very well equipped, very well trained, very well disciplined. They do not mind to kill you. Or torture. If Paul Revere and other historical figures were so dedicated and with such little ability and tools, how much more dedicated we should be with all the tools and all the ability we have to get our hands a little dirty and to reach the world with such huge messages of importance, of urgency, mean importance. We're going to be held responsible for what we do and what we don't do. If we sit on this, keep our mouth shut, we will be held responsible according to Ezekiel 33. If we see the sword coming and we do not blow the trumpet to warn the people and they die, their blood is on our hands, equal 33. we got to blow the trumpet, and we're about to be blowing it loud, loud, loud. And we're about to be blowing it often. Not once a week. We need to prioritize what time we've got left. I believe that we've got very, 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 very little time left. And if that be true, then even so much more important to lay down some of the other stuff, lay down some of the other goals and plans that we want to do, and put God first, really, really first. This urgent message first. As much as possible. I know, realize, I realize some people do have to work. You do have to pay the rent. You do have to pay the electric. I understand that. But nevertheless, if there is some area of our life that we can let go of and replace it with the very important time and energy of getting these words out there, then we need to be doing it. I know not everybody can quit their job yet. Some can. Some can. And some can give up certain priorities. I do believe that if people have children and they want the children to graduate from high school and so forth, be a doctor or a lawyer, I think they need to give up on those dreams. Because there ain't no time for college. There ain't no time to graduate from high school. There ain't no time to make sure their kids get a 
uh, A on the report card. It's all just distraction. Anyway. It's all a distraction, and the school won't be here much longer, and the college ain't going to be here much longer, and there ain't even going to be an electorate much longer. Amen. So if I had a son or a daughter, I'd be like, yeah, you know, try to get by. Try to get by. But when it comes for worship services or some kind of a gathering of the saints to come together or to witness or to do some kind of work of the Lord, and if it means not finishing your homework and getting an F on it, okay, get an F. Get an F. Don't do your homework. If it means that choose one or the other, if there's a choice between finishing your homework or listening to services or, or gathering together or witnessing or something, doing the work of the Lord, then I would rather for my son or my daughter to not pass the grade. The work of God is more important than finishing school or getting a good grade. We have to make tough choices. We've got to make tough choices. Mm -hmm. Same thing with work. That if our work says you have to work on Saturday or else you're fired, bye-bye. Fire me. I'll sue you, but fire me. We cannot be working the seventh day. The seventh day, Saturday today, is holy unto God. We should not even go to the store. We should not even go to the restaurants. We should be right here listening to the word of God, reading the Bible, praying, fellowship, and having a meal together later, laying down, resting, hanging out, fellowship. Not out there in the world buying material possessions. This is a day set apart from the rest of the week. We could have went to the store yesterday. Not today. Yesterday was a plain old day. Today is holy unto the Lord. So we have to make choices. Sometimes it's tough choices. So we need to make a statement that we are not going to the restaurants on Saturday. You can let those employees stand up. That's right. That's right. Amen. Let's look at one more verse. Let's go to the book of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. 17. John 17. John chapter 17. This is where Jesus was praying to the Father. Now, he is the Father. But remember, he got separated from the greater measure of his spirit. When God came to the earth, he didn't, all of him, not every bit of God came to the earth because not every bit of God could even fit on the earth. The Bible says the earth is his footstool. So God, he fills the entire universe. He's huge, that, that huge. 
He's on every planet, every galaxy, every solar system. So not all of God came to the earth, but he put a little bit of himself into Mary and out of Mary. And that little bit of himself has to submit to the greater amount of his power. Has to. My little finger has to submit to the rest of my body. My little finger, my feet, my hands, my tongue has to submit to my mind, to my soul, to my spirit, who I am. The fleshly body of Jesus, his hands, his feet, his mouth, even his human brain, had to submit to the spirit of God that exists in all the universe. That's how he submitted himself to God, to his Father, and prayed to the Father because there was a much greater presence of himself that never came down to the earth. And he knew that, and he realized it, and he set us an example. This is the true Lord's Prayer. Where do they say, you know, they say the Lord's Prayer is when he said, uh, uh, in a different chapter, and it, where it says, hallowed be your name, give us our daily bread. That's uh, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, Matthew 5. Okay. Matthew 5. And everybody says that's the Lord's Prayer. People even put it on their wall. People even pray that like it's a prayer. And it was not even a prayer. Jesus was not praying. They asked him, how should we pray? And his response was, pray like this. He wasn't actually praying. He was teaching how to pray. He was not praying. Yeah, but now in this verse, he was praying, in this chapter here, John 17. So this is the true Lord's Prayer in John 17. So let's read this, where he actually really is praying. John 17, verse 1. Well, I don't want to start in verse 1. I'm going to go down to verse uh, 15. Verse 15. This is while he's praying. It says, I do not ask you, talking to the Father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil. That was part of his prayer. You can read the whole thing later. But he said, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil. So right there, that proves two things, at least two things. In one sense, it proves that he's not going to take us out of this world in a pre-tribulation rapture. He's not going to take us out of this world. He's coming down to this world. He's coming down to us at the end of the tribulation. We don't go up there. Well, we do go up there for the marriage supper, for only a short time, only 41 and a half days. That's it. It's for the marriage supper. But then we come back down with him. He comes down. He lives here on this earth during the thousand years. And even after that, forever and ever, he is going to live on this earth and we will too. Heaven is not our home. The Bible says we should reign on the earth. It says that. Even Matthew 5 says the meek shall inherit the earth. It doesn't right. say the meek inherits heaven. Yeah. It nowhere says we're going to live forever and ever. It doesn't say it. There's a lot we have to unlearn from the false churches. 
Now, the second thing this proves is, like Paul said, <laughs> you would pretty much have to leave the earth to, to completely stay away from sinners. I, I don't really expect you to stay completely away from sinners, completely. You know, we're not to hang out with them, but I don't expect you to completely stay away from sinners. And Jesus does not expect us to completely stay away from sinners altogether. So we must be willing to witness among the unclean. And sometimes that means coming out of our comfort zone and doing some things we don't really like to do. You know, we might not really want to go to, to the jail or to the nursing home or or on a hot day when it's 100 degrees we might, or even on a cold day we might not want to go and put flyers out. But we need to take time to work in the field while it's still day. Jesus said work while it's still day because there's a night coming when no man will be able to work. Jesus said that. Because once that electric goes off, you also, your phone, your internet, your social media, the bus, even driving in a car, we won't be able to do this no more because once the electric is off, because of the war, the invasion, then we won't even be able to drive down the road because it'll be martial law. You won't even be able to drive down the road. You won't be able to call or email. You won't even be able to put flyers out because it'd be martial law. So if we're going to work, we've got to work now. We've got to work now. For there is a night coming, meaning a dark period of time, when we're not going to be able to do this anymore. And social media, Facebook and so forth, is an excellent way of reaching this dark world. And yes, we're going to see naked pictures and people worshiping false gods and atheists and people cussing. We're going to see all that unclean people, unclean things when we're on the Internet. It's going to happen. We can't help it. And we might not want to see these things, but sometimes we've got to get our hands dirty, see some things we don't want to see, hear some things we don't want to hear, and we can reply back to it. We can say, that's dirty, that's nasty, you shouldn't be doing this. We can reply back. We don't have to keep our mouth shut. But we should expect when we're witnessing to the dark world that we're going to see and hear some things that we don't want to see and hear. That goes along with the job. Just like our families and our friends saying we're deceived and we've joined a cult, we should expect that they're going to say that. We have to be real about this. We would be deceiving ourselves if we really believe that everybody's going to believe us. If we really think that we can go and talk to our family, talk to our friends, or talk to the other pastors, or talk to other Christians, so-called Christians, if we really think we're going to tell them the truth and they're going to accept it, 
then we're ignorant because they're not going to accept mostly most people are not going to accept most of our family most of our so-called friends even most of our so-called brothers and sisters they are not going to accept there's only eight souls saved in Noah's time and today only eight of us and this is all around the world in Korea in Australia there's only eight of us so we do have to be real that they might not accept and probably won't accept but we still got to give them a chance we still got to give those prisoners at least a chance to say I believe or I don't believe we got to give them at least a chance that's fair God is fair God is fair and we should at least give people a chance our husbands our wives our brothers or sisters the fake ones and the true ones we need to at least give them the chance even those dirty nasty filthy dogs on Facebook we got to give them a chance and if they reject it you can block them you can delete them and still be on Facebook you don't have to run out of the house you don't have to pick up the phone and say I canceled my internet what yeah. God did not call us to completely go to Mars and leave this world or to shut down the internet or to shut down social media or to turn off your phone so that you don't see the filth of this world you got to expect that you're going to see filth because we live in this world and as long as we live in this world we're going to see and hear things we don't want to see and hear but that's life that's life and it's reality amen yeah there's been times in churches where I've stood up in the middle of church and been like you teach lies I just can't listen no more and I get out of it <laughs> amen there's been times that I've gotten up in the middle of worship services in the false churches and just left right in the middle yeah. of service amen. that's another thing we've got to keep our minds focused on is not to hide from those churches and shut them out give them a chance we've got to go in there and speak truth well the thing though about that brother is there's a time and a place for everything yeah and if we really think that we can go into their church and correct them and teach them no that's yeah. not the way that, that's not the time and the place to do it because they are not going to listen to us their leader well they're their pastor well but I think in the audience that if you just walked in a church in the middle of their service and said hey they're teaching lies in here um, the truth of God is blah 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 I'm gonna go out and if any of you want to follow hey come because this is lies they won't do it maybe do it maybe not no they won't no they won't I've talked to people that thought the same way as you're thinking right now and they tried that more than one person it doesn't work that's just like going into a bar they're all drinking and they're all drunk you go in there and you yeah. say 
every one of you, this is wrong. And I'm here to help you. I love you. Follow me outside. You're going to get some beer bottles thrown at you. They're not going to listen to you. They're not going to follow you outside. You don't go into their lion cage and say, you're wrong, I'm right. I see you know, I can I can see I, I see how that can be the wrong approach. Yeah. It's it's not the right approach. There is right time and a right place for everything. And we have to plan and calculate what is the best way to do something. And use wisdom and reality. We have to really face the reality that when you are when those people are in the middle of the worship service, they are under demonic spirits and they don't want help. And they're not asking for help. And when you come in, when you very first raise your voice to say something opposite or contrary to what they want to hear, you immediately become their enemy. In their hearts, in their minds, in their spirits, you have immediately become their enemy. That's the way they're going to look at you and go in their church to try to tell them separately, differently from what they want to hear. When Paul went to Mars Hill, he didn't even go there on his own. They brought him there. He was, he was going to the churches that was keeping the seventh day and he was going to the marketplace, the flea market, the stores. And then people saw him there and they said, oh, let's go over here. Come with us because we want to hear more. That's, he went with people that wanted to hear. And that's what we need to do. If they want to hear, then spend time with them. But to go somewhere where they're not even seeking they're not even asking what the truth is, mm-hmm. and they don't want it, and you're going to become their enemy. This is how I know. This is not going to do it. This is how I know. What God has yeah. put the Spirit. You have the Spirit, and you're so strong, and you are such a true shepherd of God and the Word and the truth. I was meant to be here. I mean, there is just absolutely no. And especially when you're talking about a whole group of people, okay? When you go into a prison, usually the way that happens is when you very first start going into a prison to witness to people, a jail, the people that run the prison or the jail, they make a scheduled time with you you're going to be there at a certain day and a certain time. And they set up a room with some chairs in it. And they tell the prisoners, say, for example, on Saturday, February the 2nd, there's going to be a preacher here. And it's going to be in a certain room. And if any of you want to go listen to him, he'd be in that room at that day and at that time. You need to sign up for it so we will unlock your cells, and you can go listen to them. That's the way that works. 
because I've talked to a lot of people that go into the prisons. A lot of people I've talked to them, and that's the way that works. You don't just walk in the prison, you know, <laughs> like it's your best friend's house and just go cell to cell and talk to them. No. They set up a room and they say, if you want to go listen to him, he's there. Right. And I, but man, when you walk into a whole pack of dogs, you march into their army base, say the Russian army, and they've got a thousand men. Let's make it just a hundred. Say there's a, a hundred man troop of Russian soldiers one mile from here, and it's the Great Tribulation. There's no election. We've already been invaded. We're still right here, safe and sound. God's protecting us. We're like, there's a hundred Russian soldiers over there. Those are human beings. I want to give them an opportunity to accept Jesus Christ. We march over there. We're filled with the power of the Holy Ghost. (laughs) God's going to protect us. We're God's people. We go over there and we say, excuse me, I love you. I'm full of the Holy Ghost, and I'm here to give you the word of God. Bam! They're going to shoot you right on the spot. And that's why the same thing, if you march into their camp, you march into their church, you have marched into the enemy's camp. Right. With the general there, with the, with the master sergeant there. Yeah. In charge of these troops. Uh, yeah, that would have been done. It is, it is, it's not wise to march into their church. Unless God really, really tells you to do that. Now, if God tells you to do it, yes. And God did tell Jeremiah to stand at the door of the church, the door of the temple, which was God's true church. But the people that were going to that temple, they were sinners, and they weren't really saved. And God did tell Jeremiah, stand at the door and tell the people they were sinners and that the invasion is coming and they've got to repent. But Jeremiah really did hear the voice of God, right. and he was a prophet. He wasn't a disciple. He wasn't a student. He was the main prophet. He was the big man that God was really using. He was the Moses, the Noah of the time. You know? So we all have different callings. Now, some people can march into that Russian troop and not get killed. But you've got to make for sure you saw the lightning and you heard the thunder. You've got to make for sure God really did tell you that it's not just your imagination or what you want to do. And there's a lot of people. Lots of people, lots of people that think God tells them to do something. And it's just really their their own imagination. Yeah, yeah. You gotta be really careful with that. Like yeah. I I'm just weak I'm weak in the knowledge, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> and so I don't know what my calling is yet. And I Exactly. I'm just waiting. I don't preach, you know, I try my best mm-hmm. not to preach or teach because yeah. I'm not wise enough. Exactly. So when you first come into the truth You have to take time to first learn. Remove the the logs from your eyes. Yeah, yeah. First get your own life. (laughs) 
You know, you can't be going into churches until first you start keeping the seventh day, start keeping all the holy days, believe in only one God, not three, so on, so on, so on. So you first have to learn a whole lot, read lots of Bible, pray a lot, even fast a lot when you first come to the Lord in the truth. And really keep growing more than just a few days, few weeks, few months. Really, most people that eventually end up as pastors, they have to wait and sit in the pews, pews with everybody else for years, really. But there are some that do it much more. Yes, yes. There are some, Paul, he, as soon as he got saved, he started preaching the very same day. But Paul was an exception because Paul already knew about the seventh day. He already knew about the holy days. He already knew that it was one God, not three, not a trinity. He already knew against Christmas, Easter, Sunday, all that. Even before he got saved, he knew all of that because in Judaism, they know all that. In Judaism, even though Judaism denies Jesus as God, like he did deny Jesus as God, but at least in Judaism, they don't do Christmas. They don't do Easter. They don't do the uh, Trinity. They don't believe in Trinity. Uh, they go to church on Saturday. They keep all God's true holy days. So they have a good foundation of truth already. And he had already read the entire Bible, all of it, that existed at the time. The New Testament had been written. But the Old Testament is still a huge book. And the Old Testament in Paul's day was much thicker than the King James. Because remember those books they took out? They were there. So he had read all of the Old Testament, including the books that now has been taken out. So he had read all the Bible that existed at the time. Every word of it. He knew a lot of it instantly in his mind and his heart. So he had a lot of foundation. So he was not the same as somebody today that would just first start finding out about the seventh day. He had he had already been in church for years. He just mm-hmm. wasn't saved that he was in church for years. But he was going to the church that kept the seventh day and all the holy days, not Christmas. I didn't know about Christmas. the seventh day. I didn't know about the other holy days. Either. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, he's, he's brought me here to learn because he's got yeah. something big for me. I feel yeah. it. I mean, yeah. I've been able my whole life to do things from him. Yeah. All right, now let's move forward. Now, we've got to prioritize. We've got to work. We've got to work hard in a short period of time, but each one within our own calling. Okay? And we have to seek the Lord and take time to seek the Lord and make for sure that what we do is God's will and not our own will. That it is him leading us and not us leading ourselves. Even Jesus said, pray to Father, your will, not mine, even though he was God, but he realized that he was only part of God, that he was only the, the hand of God. He wasn't the brain of God. He was only the small part of God that came through Mary. He realized, even though he created heaven and earth, that he had subjected himself to humble himself 
to the greater measure of his spirit. He had to humble himself. Jesus did. And if Jesus humbled himself, then we too. Guess what? He wasn't. He waited until he was at least 30 years old before he started preaching. Mm -hmm. Jesus did. He knew the Bible better than anybody. He dictated the Bible to Moses. (laughs) Jesus dictated to Moses, write this down. Same thing with Jeremiah. Write this down, Jeremiah. Write this down. Jesus knew the Bible more than any man that ever lived. And he waited till he was 30 years old before he even started really preaching. Now, he had witnessed to people his entire life, even as a child. Even at 12 years old, the Bible said that he was talking to people. And they were amazed at how much he knew, even when he was 12. Which, again, proves he's God. He never went to college. But he knew more than the Pharisees did about the Bible, which proves he's God. But even though he knew the Bible more than any preacher, he went to church on the seventh day for 30 years. He went to church on the seventh day without preaching. So even if we are called to preach and teach, we first, and even if we already know the truth, We first have to learn how to be a servant. Jesus, the Bible says he came as the suffering servant. The word minister actually means servant. That's what it means. Minister, if I minister to you, I'm serving you. Be a preacher, first you have to be a servant. You have to first learn how to put ourselves underneath everybody else, put other people's needs first, and wash their feet. On Passover day, once a year, not only do we take a sip of wine and an unleavened bread cracker, but we also, after we do that, take that communion, then we all take our socks off and we say, we get down on our hands and we knees and we wash one another's feet. Jesus said, do that. Who does that? Nobody. We do. But no, nobody does. But we do. Because Jesus said, do this. He said, do this. And we do that every year on Passover evening. But only if we're baptized. The Bible says that this is only for the people who are his people. We can't allow just strangers come in here to do that. But if they are our true brothers, our true brothers and our true sisters, then we would do that. And that teaches us to humble ourselves and to serve other people. That's very humbling when you wash somebody else's feet. It's very, very humbling. And that's what we need. Even Jesus came as a servant. He could have came as the king, because he is the king of kings. But he came as a baby, and then as a child, and then as a young man, and waiting at least 30 years or maybe even 33 years before he even started really, really preaching. 
So we first have to learn how to humble ourselves and wait. We have to learn how to wait until the right moment at the right place. When you go through the grocery store at Christmas time and somebody says Merry Christmas, instead of biting their head off, all we have to do is give them a flyer and trust that when they get off from work, they might read that flyer. But to stand there right there in the middle of the grocery store line and try to explain the history of Christmas, where it came from and everything, that's not the right time, right place, right? Because then everybody behind us be like, oh, come on, I've got to check out, you know? So there's the right time, right place for everything. But we do need to try to reach out more. And I've been saying this almost every week now, so I don't know how long. But I want to tell one more example. One more example. I was going to, but I'm examining myself, make for sure. This is what God wants me to do and not myself. I feel like the Holy Ghost of Jesus says, this is where the sermon ends, and I don't have to give that another example. There's a phrase that says, do not be a dead horse dead. <laughs> you know, if the horse is dead, don't beat it dead. It's already dead. So I've already explained everything you need to hear today. I thank you for listening. Thank you for uh, listening to me for almost three hours. So I will be typing up the notes from the sermon and sending it out to people tomorrow in an email so that people can review the notes. And the notes might even have additional scriptures as well that you can check out and read. And these are only the notes. It's not going to be every word that I say. Just notes. And uh, as soon as we uh, disconnect all the electronics and Internet and telephone, I, was, I need to start working on, I got to save the video and upload the video. The audio is live, and but even then I have to upload the recording of the audio, and I hope I have to upload the video and get all of this on the website so that as people come later today to listen, or tomorrow or next month or next year, that it will be there on the Internet. So I'm going to have to work on that as soon as we hang up here, <clears throat> and I will get uh, Brother James, I will get him to take the candles outside, if you would, and blow them out outside so the fumes when you blow them out. I don't know that smoke. I just read a few seconds here. But I'll let you do that here in a few minutes. And I'll start working on other things, get the video up on the website as soon as possible for people. Please be praying for the sermon for next week. And pray for one another, pray for all the new people, and pray for yourselves. That's very important. 
and uh, pray for the ministry in general. And pray about what God wants you to do in these next few months, next few weeks, what he wants you to do. Nobody knows more than God what you're supposed to do. I can't really tell people that much. Ask God what you're supposed to do. Take time to ask him, fast if necessary. And instead of doing just five-minute prayers, people need to be doing 30-minute prayers and even 45 minutes, even an hour of just praying and pouring your heart out, everything off your mind and heart, get everything off your chest, and your fears and your disappointments and your hopes, and just talk to God like a friend, but also with reverence and honor and respect and worship. Always start your prayers as Jesus set the example in Matthew 5 where he was teaching how to pray. Start your prayer in recognizing the Father, honoring him, reverence, instead of starting with, can I please have this, can I please have this, can you please do this? You first acknowledge who you're talking to as he is the Father. First start with worship and praise and thanksgiving. Then after you do your worship, praise, and thanks, given a whole list, thank you for this, thank you for this, thank you for this, and I love you and I worship you, and thank you for this, and thank you for this. After you've poured all of your thanks out, then you start going into praying for this person and praying for that other person, praying for that situation, and then eventually even praying for yourself as well and your needs, your heart, and direction, praying for direction, what to do, where to go. And every morning, every morning, every morning, praying to God, more than five minutes, praying to God, pouring your heart out to Him, first thing you do in the morning. You want to get you a glass of water to help you through your prayer, that's fine. You can get a glass of water first, or if you got to go bathroom, you can do that first. But still yet, you got to get in prayer sometime soon after you get up, start praying. And then at night, before you go to bed, praying your heart out, talking with God about everything that happened that day. Everything. Thank you for what I bought at that store. Thank you for what I got from this person. Thank you for what I bought at this other store. Thank you for this. Thank you for the sack of potatoes, the bananas. Thank you for the tomatoes. Thank you for the chicken. Thank you for the cup of water. Thank you for the breath of life today. Thank you, Father, for this. Thank you for your mercy upon me. Thank you for not giving up on me. Thank you for a second chance. Thank you for this. Thank you for this person. Thank you for that person. Thank you for answering that prayer. Thank you for this. Thank you for not killing me today. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know. And will you do this? Will you think about this? Will you consider this, Father? And try not to command Him. Too many people command God. Yeah. You know. We should be. We should be more of. 
Uh, Father, will you please think about this? Will, will, you, will you please think about this? Will you maybe, would you might, perhaps, maybe, would you might do this? Would this be acceptable to you? Would this be your will? We need to pray more about his will be accomplished, not so much, uh, Father, it should be this way. Will you give this person a job? Please, no, wait a minute. People command, Father, Father, give this person, give this person a job, give this person a house, give this person money, heal this person, do this, do this. It were commanding God. It should be more like, Father, would it be your will? Would you please consider this? Would you would you please think about healing this person? Uh, Father, this person needs a job. Would you think about, would you perform this? Would you bring them a job if that is what you want for them, if that's what's good for them, if that's what is really needful for that person, would you please do that? Make it more of request, not commands. Okay? Like you would ask your dad for his trip. Yeah. Yeah, dad. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Good example. You're not yeah, go James said, like, asking your dad for the truck keys. <laughs> you don't just spit it out, dad can I have the truck keys, but rather, uh, dad, I know you would want me to do this. And, you know, <laughs> uh, dad, I know it's your will for me to get a job. So therefore, can I please borrow just for an hour the truck? I bring it back. I promise, without any dents in it. Amen. So you got to treat God as your father, and with reverence and fear, not demanding, but requesting. Amen. Amen. Good example. All right. I'll let everybody go. Have a good meal. Fellowship. Love. Peace. In Jesus' name, so be it.